Hi, I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. It is the anniversary of January the 6th, the single worst day in American history, by a mile, not even close, way, way, way worse than 9-11, or at least that's how the media is portraying it, it appears. And sadly, some Republicans are not doing much better. Uh, Disappointing rhetoric from Ted Cruz comes up on today's show, who said uh, what happened at the Capitol this day last year was terrorism, literal terrorism, and some unsurprising rhetoric from the likes of Karl Rove, who is going out of his way to try to trash Trump and his supporters and use January the 6th as an opportunity to reinstall the establishment of the Republican Party at the top of the party. But I break down what I think is the real story of January the 6th, which is probably, in many ways, the suspension of due process and the bastardization of our Constitution. I explain all that in the opening of the show. The reverse psychology that the left is using to make sure MAGA country does not get the coronavirus injections that Donald Trump gave us is in full flight. An unvaxxed rising Republican star in her mid-40s and apparently healthy is now dead out in California. And uh, sadly, it was probably preventable. I say that, of course, with the caveat that I have an examiner, not a doctor, etc. But it appears as though uh, this is highly likely was preventable. At least that's what her husband thinks. And it's very sad. And uh, we explain in today's show what this all means. Uh, New cases are at a near record level, so schools are shutting down. Those closures have come back, thousands of schools and all. uh, But some on the left aren't happy about it this time. And there's a very simple explanation as to why they're not happy. I explain also in the opening of the show. Uh, We have a sensational interview today, if I say so myself, with retired uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller, who famously resigned and then went to jail after a scathing criticism that he delivered in uniform on video of what he believes is the deterioration of the culture in our armed forces that led to the the botched Afghanistan pullout and the droning of civilians, uh, which I don't believe anyone has been held accountable uh, for those failures as of this time. And he thinks the culture that has been created by these woke generals is trickling down through the armed forces and is a fundamental threat to the republic. Uh, He explains in great detail in today's interview, and it's certainly one that uh, you can't miss, in my view. Plus, we have our caller of the day. Uh, Let me plug our live show on SiriusXM, the Patriot Channel 125, every morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time and on the SXM app. We just had such a fast-paced and terrific show with Dr. Gorka today pushing back against the January 6th committee that's uh, subpoenaed some of his phone records, and John Nolte, my actual godfather and senior writer of Breitbart News, who uh, explains why he thinks January the 6th is turning to a massive epic media fail of uh, limitless proportions that he's enjoying. Plus, we talk about Novak Djokovic, the number one tennis player in the world who was not going to be able to defend his title at the Australian Open because he is an anti-vax guy. He's literally anti-vax. He's not just anti-mandate. He's anti-vax. So he was banned from going into Australia, and then they made an exception for him, probably because they realized they were going to hemorrhage money if they didn't have the defending champ and the number one player in the world play in the Australian Open. And so he flies all the way to Australia, and he's a Serbian guy. I don't know where he lives currently, but he's Serbian, flies to Australia, and he gets there, and they say, sorry, we take it back. And in fact, you're going to have to go to some sort of a gulag while we process you. So uh, that saga we discuss uh, with John Nolte, but it doesn't come up in the podcast. So again, the podcast is, uh, we love that you guys are subscribing and sharing, but there is a full three-hour show if you are so inclined. Uh, Today, we have a great sponsor I want to tell you about called AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. And this is a group that I've really been a supporter of for uh, quite a long time, and we're thrilled that they're a part of the show. Uh, They're an advocacy and benefits organization of conservatives that have over 2 million members and counting. It's one of the most important conservative groups in the country, bar none. And joining AMAC gives you access to money-saving benefits, cutting-edge news, and a magazine full of insightful takes on today's most important issues. But most importantly, AMAC is working tirelessly to preserve the freedom secured by our Constitution. They have a full-time presence on Capitol Hill, and they're pushing back against the efforts to defund our police, weaken our borders, and replace your freedom with government controls. So stand with me and over 2 million patriots by joining right now at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash Breitbart. The benefits are great, but the cause is greater. So join AMAC today at amac.us forward slash Breitbart. 
get into the news and we'll start with uh, January the 6th, which of course you guys know is the Feast of the Epiphany. This is where the Magi, uh, the Gentiles, realized that Jesus Christ was had a physical manifestation was the Lord and Savior, even though he was just a few days old. And uh, it's, a big, it's a big day. And that's how we always think of January the 6th, right? It, it is the ultimate epiphany. Like, hey, this guy's the son of God. That's pretty cool. So, and that's it. And that's how we'll always remember it and no other way at all. I'm being tongue-in-cheek, sadly, because today will be a day where we will be obsessed with how Donald Trump nearly overthrew our democracy because a few of his supporters uh, went to the Capitol, did some trespassing, uh, maybe a little vandalism, and one Trump supporter was killed by law enforcement. So you'll be reminded over and over again today in the establishment media how our democracy is on the brink. We played some uh, Eric Swalwell audio yesterday where he was the one leading the charge to say that democracy is on the brink. We will no longer have uh, a we no longer have the America as we know it. It is dead because of why it is dead because of Donald Trump and Donald Trump alone and his horrible supporters, which, uh, you know, mostly includes all of you people. And I will, will we will have a lot of counter programming for you at Breitbart News. I will tell you that for Breitbart.com. Um, because what is there that really needs to be said about January the 6th? Uh, I I will tell you, for me, the thing that it represents the most to me is how due process was almost completely rejected by the United States government and by our legal system, where people were held without even trial dates for months and months. I, I imagine that this is not a completely resolved scenario also, and every single resource that the government had was used to investigate and basically harass a lot of people who it was just a massive, massive overreaction. Um, I'll play just a little bit of audio. Here's the attorney general, Merrick Garland, who does not is not particularly um, impressive to me. Let's play cut three, please. The actions we have taken thus far will not be our last. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6 perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. We will follow the facts wherever they lead. As of today, we have arrested and charged more than 725 defendants in nearly all 50 states and the District of Columbia for their roles in the January 6th attack. In charging the perpetrators, we have followed well-worn prosecutorial practices. Those who assaulted officers or damaged the Capitol face greater charges. Those who conspired with others to obstruct the vote count also face greater charges. Those who did not undertake such conduct have been charged with lesser offenses, particularly if they accepted their responsibility early and cooperated with the investigation. In the first months of the investigation, approximately 145 defendants pled guilty to misdemeanors, mostly defendants who did not cause injury or damage. Such pleas reflect the facts of those cases and the defendant's acceptance of responsibility and they help conserve both judicial and prosecutorial resources so that attention can properly focus on the more serious perpetrators. Because January 6 was an unprecedented attack on the seat of our democracy, we understand that there is broad public interest in our investigation. We understand that there are questions about how long the investigation will take and about what exactly we are doing. Our answer is, and will continue to be the same answer we would give with respect to any ongoing investigation, as long as it takes and whatever it takes for justice to be done consistent with the facts and the law. Okay, so that's good. So th- this is why I, I didn't want to chime in because I wanted you to get the full breadth of it. This is the, the, why, the, where the United States government is focused right now. We're a, a year into this. 
There was no massive movement. There was no repetition. There was no second event. There is no uh, uncovering of some sort of massive cabal uh, organized by Trump or super elite people in the MAGA movement to have some sort of overthrow of the government. We had people who were very frustrated about the election, which should resonate with Democrats who showed up and some of them did some dumb stuff they shouldn't have done. And uh, we have hundreds of arrests, countless millions of government uh, resources, countless uh, hundreds, if not thousands of hours of time devoted to this. And uh, where does it leave us? Are we better off for this where we are right now? Not to mention there's oh, it seems to be no appetite to investigate some of the reporting that, you know, Tucker Carlson's had uh, suggesting that there was at a minimum a, a FBI plant somewhere inciting riots. Again, I don't know if it's true or not, but I certainly don't trust the government to uh, uh, get to the bottom of it. So, uh, look, you guys know my take on this on January the 6th. It was not a, a good day. It was a bad day. And I, I don't like what happened. And I think that it, it sets back a, a, the conservative movement and the pro-Trump movement in a major way. That's very obvious. That's the case. But hundreds of arrests and all of these investigations that will continue. And Merrick Garland's going to go to the end of the earth to try to hold everyone accountable. Okay, we got it. We got the picture. Who defends what happened on January the 6th at this point? No one. But that's not the point. The point is to uh, take revenge, to make people feel the hurt. Because why? They supported Trump. And they didn't uh, just rubber stamp Joe Biden's you know, semi-bogus victory. Not to say it, it was entirely illegitimate for you Soros-funded freaks, but it was obviously there were improprieties. And people were frustrated by them. The same way the Democrats were frustrated in 2016 and wasted all of our time with the Russian collusion hoax, all the bogus impeachments, etc. The left has launched an effort to win the midterms, according to Joel Pollack at Breitbart News, by disqualifying Republicans for insurrection. So some Democrats are using the anniversary of last year's Capitol riot on January the 6th, Joel writes for us at Breitbart to launch an effort to win the 2022 midterm elections by disqualifying Republicans who supported the effort to challenge the 2020 elections as insurrectionists. The effort is spearheaded by Russia hoaxer Mark Elias, who is maybe the most powerful person in Democrat politics at this moment. And he's aiming to use a provision of the post-Civil War 14th Amendment that was crafted to disqualify former Confederates or anyone who, quote, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, close quote, from holding federal office. Elias has pushed the effort for months, but it's picking up steam. So a lot of liberal groups and more mainstream groups are starting to embrace this, but that is anyone who they could somehow tie to January the 6th, they're, they're going to now make the case that they are no, no, no longer qualified to hold public office. That's the extent they want to go here. No higher priority for them than to continue to use this day to smear Trump, smear supporters, and even to the extent uh, if they can pull it off, and they're certainly going to try, to make so that you're not actually allowed to run for office if you were at all remotely connected to it. And you see who's connected to it. I mean, you know, you fire off one text message and um, to someone, and then all of a sudden you're under investigation, you're getting subpoenaed, you're getting harassed, and you're having your time wasted. So, and still people held without trial dates or due process, et cetera. I, I mean, just for the same people who are, these are the exact same people who want no one put in jail, no one put in prison in New York unless you're a murderer, no Black Lives Matter rioters, basically, I guess maybe a handful, but the vast majority of Black Lives Matter rioters from the riots of, uh, of summer 2020 and all the organizers. You guys know the organizers of a lot of those riots? You know their names because there's been no effort put forward to try to hold those people accountable. It's only the people who were part of the January 6th riot. Um, I, I'm just wondering if they're so bad. I mean, have there been terrorism charges against them? I haven't seen it. Maybe they don't have as much. Maybe they're just trying to waste so much of our time. And of course, the Republicans are often a part of this. The tweet going viral right now from David Axelrod, left-wing Democrat strategist, quoting Karl Rove, ultimate Republican establishmentarian. There can be no soft peddling what happened and no absolution for those who planned, encouraged, and aided the attempt to overthrow our democracy. Love of country demands nothing less, writes Karl Rove, echoed by David Axelrod. 
So the Republican establishment is content to use this as an opportunity to crush Trump and his movement and to get back to the open borders globalism of pre-Trump that uh, the Karl Roves and the George Bushes of the world were responsible for. Maybe we can find another six or eight more wars to get into while we're at it. So we talk about the Uniparty. Republican senators have teamed with Democrats to negotiate another massive Omicron stimulus package. Wendell Husabell writes for us at Breitbart, Republican Democrat senators are jointly negotiating an Omicron stimulus worth $68 billion that would boost Joe Biden's stumbling economy, the Washington Post reported Wednesday. While the Omicron variant has added chaos to the labor market amid a 40-year high inflation, Republican Democrat senators begin to talk about releasing more money, the outlet reported. And this includes Senator Roger Wicker, who is a Republican from Mississippi, Susan Collins, Republican from Maine, and perhaps others. So the, this is there are still Republicans out there who think the appropriate thing to do right now is to encourage Joe Biden and his agenda and to try to get him victories and to try to spend more of your money, even though we've got massive inflation, try to have more stimulus out there. So uh, I, I just don't see at this point in time why on earth any Republican would do anything to help Big Joey. Big Joey holds them all in contempt, as does so much of the Democrat establishment. He doesn't even know who they are. Um, Christy Noam said that uh, Big Joey, his administration reached out and uh, offered her help for the state of Montana. She's governor of South Dakota. They don't even know who Christy Noam is. Superstar on the Republican Party and governor of South Dakota. And she, Or wait a minute, maybe, maybe she's the governor of Montana, who knows? Who could even say? So that's where, why are Republicans helping at all? I have no idea. There's no reason to help them. You get rewarded when you don't help them. Uh, Joe Manchin's approval ratings are strengthening um, after he has come out and opposed of the Build Back Better Green New Deal by any other name, which doesn't make sense for him, as I discussed at length yesterday. He is in a state that is a coal state. Why would he want the Green New Deal? which is what Bill Backbatter is. So, so his approval rating is going up at the, big, at the moment. Joey Biden's uh, uh, disapproval rating is the highest it's been. It's at historic levels. Yet you still have so many people in the establishment, both left and right, who are trying to come after new blood Republicans. Eric Bollert, who is a prominent left-wing radical online who used to fight with Eric uh, who used to fight with Andy Breitbart a lot when Andy was alive. Um, he blamed the massive 21-hour-long traffic jam uh, just outside of the Beltway in Virginia on uh, on um, Glenn Youngkin, who will not be the governor for another week and a half. But so did Jonah Goldberg, who is he the dispatch or the bulwark? I don't know, but he's a former National Review guy and someone who went crazy during the Trump years right person, Republican establishment, and just went totally nuts. And he blamed Glenn Youngkin and suggested Glenn Youngkin needs to get a handle on it. Glenn Youngkin has got nine more days as a civilian until he's governor. And they weren't alone. There are many others. So uh, there are smarter people out there that, you know, are, are not doing that sort of thing. But you can see that there's a lot of people in the Republican establishment who are just in a knee jerk, who want to do everything they can to uh, try to use opportunities to quash the America First movement. Karl Rove being first among them, but still many Republicans who are still in the Senate, still in positions of power. And we need to know who they are, and they all need to get primaried. No more helping President Brandon. There's no reason to. And we can't keep printing money. How can we keep doing that? NASCAR's officially rejected Brandon Brown's Let's Go Brandon car. So uh, this is one that we've been keeping updated on a Um And it just, it just it is annoying to me. It just, we're so not fun. We used to be a fun country. Why is everyone just so into harassing people, giving people a hard time? It's constant. It's constant now. So it, even the places that are, uh, should be respites of this. I mean, at NASCAR, I mean, who watches NASCAR races? It's a, it's people who love the let's go Brandon joke. Why can't we be allowed to have a let's go Brandon joke after all the years of all the horrible things that are said about Trump? Same thing. I said this, you know, I had a caller calling recently who was saying how he enjoys watching golf because golf's not woke. Well, golf canceled the PGA Championship. PGA Tour canceled the PGA Championship 
at Trump's Bedminster course, which everyone says is fantastic. So we're not free from the wokeness anywhere. The woke takeover of our corporations is almost universal. Allow me to reiterate, let's go, Brandon. Say it wherever you can. I guess last January the 6th one I'll mention, uh, Trump had a rally that was planned that he canceled. Probably smart of him to cancel it. Because what would have happened is the networks wouldn't have carried it live. Um, and then they would have tried to take anything he said that was remotely they could take out of context. And they would have only aired those clips. Um, but he will do a rally in Arizona, which if there's a, a way to broadcast it, we will at Breitbart. And I anticipate if we do, it'll probably get, you know, taken offline at some point. Because, you know, election misinformation. A fair bit of Omicron news, still at roughly a million cases a day, which is insane. Um, I will bring something up that is, will be triggering to some of you, but it's still uh, worthwhile. A deputy DA who opposed mandates and died of coronavirus was unvaccinated. A Republican star in Orange County, California. Uh, Deputy District Attorney Kelly Earnby, who's a rising star in Republican politics, 46 years old. Um, no known underlying health conditions, looks like she's in good shape and uh, died of the coronavirus and had been a very open anti-vaccine uh, mandate person, which I resonate with, but um, her husband noted she also had not gotten the shot. And I, I just offer this up to people who, y- you are able to have a nuanced position where the mandate's bad, but the shots themselves are reducing severe coronavirus and they're reducing death. And that is the role of it. And yesterday in the show, I criticized um, some of these companies, Pfizer, Moderna in particular, J&J also, who are not doing a good job explaining that this is the use of the vaccines. They're not stopping the virus at all, but they are reducing severe COVID. That is what's happening. And if it, you don't think it's for you, I think you made up your own mind, but just know that that is true. And uh, a lot of you guys like to send me links to things uh, about the theoretical. Well, this is the this is the real. This is the actual. This is a Republican star, 46, with a family who's dead now. And the vaccine probably would have saved her life. So I'm not saying that down the road, maybe there wouldn't be some sort of big health complication. Maybe there would. I don't know. Maybe. And, and yes, there was a slightly higher incidence of myocarditis in the uh, young men in particular who have got it. I get it. It's small, but it's real. Fine, I get it. But when we're still at 2,000 plus deaths per day, uh, what do you think the number is of those deaths that could have been avoided with the shot? I think it's probably 80%. But what if it's 50? I mean, is it, what is the number where it makes a difference? What is it? What is, uh, 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 where is the number for you where you start my thinking, huh, maybe there's something to it? To the Trump vaccines that Trump got us. I think one of the reasons, though, I mean, that the the vaccine skepticism will endure is because we have freaks like this medical ethics professor from NYU named Arthur Kaplan, who's a guest on CNN, who said he wants unvaccinated Americans penalized and he wants to deny them affordable health insurance. He wants to shame and blame them. Pretty insane, quote, we can penalize them more. We can say you will have to pay more in your hospital bills. You can't get life insurance or disability insurance at affordable rates if you aren't vaccinated. Those companies should not treat us as equals in terms of what the financial burdens are that that disease imposes. Pretty epic rant. I'll condemn them. I'll shame them. I'll blame them. That is the exact opposite of what the Hippocratic Oath is all about. You know, he's not a medical doctor, I don't think. He's a professor in bioethics. I'm guessing this is a guy who's not a medical doctor. I should have looked that up before. I will look it up now. And um, let's see where he went to school. I will be, yeah, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing, a, yeah, yeah, master's, PhD, master's, another master's. Yeah, not a medical doctor. He's a bioethics expert, and this is who CNN puts out there. And he, he wants you guys to die. He does. Vaccinated or unvaccinated, he does want you guys dead. Just know that. And CNN elevates him. That's what's happening over at CNN. And at NYU, by the way, which some of you, I'm sure there's someone in the audience who's spending 60 grand a year to send your kid there so you can teach from, so you can learn from this guy. This is why people just don't want to participate. Crystal clear to me that the reverse psychology is happening in a robust way. 
where the people who are thinking about getting the shot, they don't want to be on the same side as monsters like this guy, like Arthur Kaplan. Is that a Hippocratic Oath? Do you, first, do no harm. Uh, you know, the, the, you slaughter the unvaccinated, which is what he'd like to do. It appears. I'll add the it appears caveat just for fun. Um, no Golden Globes, I guess, this year. It's going to all be virtual. It's supposed to be this weekend. It's kickoff Hollywood award season, which none of you care about. But the Golden Globe is sometimes fun because it's the only one where Hollywood roasts themselves and they seem to have a good time. And the, all the other ones are just way too stuck up, all the million award shows. But no red carpets, no celebrities, no fashion, no media, no audience. All because of Omicron. Uh, do we choose eventually to just start going back to living our lives or not? Because if CNN does another ticker up now, they had uh, the ticker when it was 200,000 cases a day with Trump, but now with a million cases a day with Biden, they don't put their ticker up. Why not? They should put their ticker up. We're having a, about the same number of deaths per day in January of 2022 as we had in January of 2021. Now, we have four times the cases now, but it's still about just about as many people are dying today as they were this time last year from coronavirus. So where's, where's my ticker? So can we choose eventually to just start living our lives? I, I got to say in my life, I'm not noticing a huge difference. I'm not seeing a huge freak out. The places that don't make me wear masks are still not making me wear masks that I go to on a regular basis. Um, no one really in my public life is canceling stuff. I'm sorry, my private life is canceling stuff. I think a lot of the country is just totally over it, but uh, the, still you see these virtue signals that still continue to take place. None bigger than what the teachers unions are doing across the country, demanding schools shut down over Omicron, which is of course low risk, and all of the teachers are free to get vaccinated, which uh, almost eliminates severe uh, COVID and death. Not entirely, but very close. And kids have never been good vectors of passing the virus. So they will all stay home and they'll stay home presumably with other people who might be better vectors of the virus and they'll all, they can all be trapped inside. So it's totally anti-science, has not worked. Everyone kind of acknowledges who cares about the science at all. Uh, the safest thing, both mentally and physically for kids is probably to be in the classroom, but they don't care because they want to get paid to do nothing. Led by the monster Randy Weingarten. Even Nicole Hannah-Jones of the 1619 Project, who is, you know, radical anti-American educator, anointed by the New York Times and others, uh, she's admitted remote learning is not working. Probably because for her, people are looking over the shoulders at those in our school system who are teaching CRT, critical race theory, and the parents are getting fed up, and that's what led to what happened in Virginia. I mean, Virginia got a whole governor election over critical, um, uh, over uh, remote learning. Glenn Youngkin won because of remote learning. There's no doubt because particularly Loudoun County, Virginia, a lot of these parents saw what was going on and the schools were, um, uh, you know, teaching a bunch of uh, uh, cultural Marxism and they weren't teaching reading, writing, arithmetic. And when that dawned on the parents, the parents started to get more involved. And then all of a sudden they were fighting back on the transit area as well. And then all of a sudden, Republicans win in a state that everyone thought had gone blue. So uh, th that's probably why Nicole Hannah-Jones is saying, hey, we got to get the kids back in the classroom because you can't do this. It's much harder to do the CRT stuff when the parents are in the room. You don't want the parents in the room because remember, she's the one who said that uh, she doesn't trust the parents to uh, uh, to make the decisions on what's best for the education of the kids. She wants these uh, professional educators to do it, the school systems the government officials. All right, I'll throw out one piece of good news. Always, uh, Ron DeSantis is always uh, looking for new ways to fight back against the left and the globalists. And he's investing millions of dollars in semiconductor production to combat U.S. reliance on China. I love this. Any effort like this that's taking place, I will try to elevate it on the show on Breitbart.com. Um, this is just one of the issues of our time, and it's going to take a full generation, I think, to come back from this. Um, the fact that we're so dependent on China, the fact that we are so uh, unbelievably dependent on them for so many of our, uh, not just inessential stuff, like our cheap made in China plastic crap that uh, my kids play with. Um, the, the, it is not just that, it's also essentials like semiconductors, which we need. So we need to start the process of baking them here. And I think it'll be good for America's economy and it'll certainly be good to protect us uh, from the evil communist regime in Beijing. <laughs>
I'm sure I'm not the only one who's noticed that everything is getting expensive. We're in the biggest economic crisis since 2008, and the government is printing trillions and trillions of dollars. Consumer prices are the highest we've seen in 30 years, and inflation is here to stay. If the government continues its out-of-control printing and spending, the dollar could continue its freefall and lose its coveted role as the world's reserve currency. So, how do you protect your money, your retirement, your savings? Well, American Hartford Gold can show you how to hedge your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. They'll even help you move your existing IRA or 401k out of the volatile stock market into a precious metals IRA. And they make it easy. They're the highest-rated firm in the country with an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau, and they have thousands of satisfied clients. So if you call them right now, they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first qualifying order. So don't wait. Call them now. Call 866-670-7660. That's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532. Again, that's 866-670-7660 or text ALEX to 65532 for American Hartford Gold. So our guest today on the podcast is Stu Scheller, who made a headline after headline when he made a few dramatic videos, one in particular went mega viral in uniform, criticizing the uh, armed forces. He is a Marine or was a Marine until he resigned uh, because of, he thought the botched pullout of Afghanistan and the lack of accountability was uh, too much to bear. And he felt the need to speak up and that ignited a big debate about chain of command and uh, what is appropriate criticism. Uh, and he makes a pretty strong case for himself and a compelling guy who I think is probably going to be around the public eye for a while now. But we got one of the first interviews with him since he's been kind of making the rounds. And let's play it. Stu, great to have you on the broadcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Alex. I really appreciate the opportunity to get to talk to you and your guest. Uh, thank you. And there's a lot to, to get to, but I do want to hear about your background. Uh, first of all, I want to hear about your 17-year career uh, in, in uh, whether or not there was any controversies in your past, anything that might have led you to the point where you said, I'm going to uh, take a bold stand here in the public and see what comes my way. Yeah, so I was an infantry officer 17 years, been a company commander multiple times. Uh, when I made the video, I was a command-selected battalion commander. Uh, I've worked in MARSOC. I've deployed five times. I've been to Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and there was, you know, I was a selected to battalion command in my career field means you were in the top 20% of your peers. You know, I was on the track, still progressing, um, successful in what I did. There was no disciplinary or, or negative action previous to this. And, you know, so I w had a very successful career up to the point that led us to the fallout of Afghanistan, some of the comments I made. And the reason that I did that was because, like I just said, I spent 17 years doing this. It's very personal for me. I've studied this. I've got a master's in military science where I focused on my thesis was foreign diplomacy, how we could do it more effectively. And I was watching the Afghanistan withdrawal unfold real time, you know, on social media news. And I was getting angry. And I, the Marine Corps senior leader put out a comment that if Marines were struggling with it, because he was addressing how we were all struggling with it, that we should go seek counseling. And quite honestly, that just made me more angry because I thought, people are struggling because senior leaders are failing and he either doesn't understand that or he's choosing to not address that. But either way, it's angering me. And then when the attack actually happened on August 26th, you know, that was my first unit, uh, 1-8. So I was in Ramadi with 1-8. My best friend got hit with a suicide vest. And so it kind of came full circle to me. And then, um, yeah, so that's what led me to, to making the video. I just got to a point where I knew senior leaders wouldn't be held accountable. I knew nobody else was going to say anything. And I it wasn't a decision I made lightly because I knew it would upend my whole life and career. But at the end of the day, we've been repeating the same mistakes for the last 60 years and somebody needed to say something. So I want to get into all the details of this. But first, I want to start with what really is the essence here. And I think it's got overshadowed a little bit by 
um, uh, other compelling elements of your story, which is that what were your criticisms? What exactly are specifically the problems with either the strategy or the personnel or both with the way we handled Afghanistan and our withdrawal? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, and I would even argue the parallels in Vietnam are very similar. We are winning every battle. The tactical level of war with the young service member, they are successful every single time. Where we are failing wars is at the operational and strategic level. I define operational by four-star combatant command. So when you're talking Iraq and Afghanistan, that's the CENTCOM combatant command. That four-star general takes what the National Security Council and the president are telling him and translates it into military members executing plans on the tactical level. So that link right there from the four-star combatant commander to the National Security Council, Secretary of Defense, President of the United States, is where we are failing. And so right now, after Vietnam, let's just use that as a parallel, we lost. But we still won almost every tactical battle, but we lost at the operational strategic level. But after Vietnam, we allowed the general officers, who none of them were held accountable, we allowed them to say, well, it was the draft, there was a drug problem, we need to increase the standards, we need to clean up the service. We need to change our tactics. And they essentially focused on the tactical level, even even though that's not where the failure occurred. And the same thing is happening right now with the GWAT generation. They're saying, hey, we need to mature the force. We need to look at distributed operations. We need to uh, do all these different things on the tactical level. That's not where we're failing. We need to hold general officers accountable at the operational level. We need to hold Secretary of Defense I mean, there's a long list of them need to be held accountable for the the failures in the link between the strategic operational to the tactical level. And so that to me is the fundamental problem. And how you do that is you hold general officers accountable. And so, you know, a lot has been attributed to me in the news about me criticizing Joe Biden. If you go back and look at my statements, I never once brought up Joe Biden's name. The closest yeah, I don't I remember that either. Name, yeah, I, I don't remember. Yeah. The closest I got to was saying I have a growing discontent and contempt for the political and military leadership. That's as close as I got. My frustration has been focused on the four-star general officer level. Yet I have a lot of frustration with the current president, but the way you hold a president accountable is through voting, right? Like, I'm not going to influence that. But sure. the military leaders that should be advising on this thing absolutely can be held accountable. And it, it just goes back to we've been lionizing the military and people want to show appreciation. And criticizing them almost feels un-American. But the truth is we need criticism on those general officers more than we ever have before to help the junior service member. And so uh, that, that would be the fundamental thing that I would address. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller is with me. And uh, I want to get as many specifics from you as I can because it, it, you do have a truly unique perspective here. And let's start with the drone strike that killed 10 Afghanistan civilians, uh, many of them children. Uh, I have seen zero accountability for this. Absolutely zero. Has there been any? Has there been an investigation order that we know of? Do you believe there'll ever be any accountability? Do you know who should be held accountable? Yes, they did an investigation and they came back and said it was a mistake, but, you know, that's the cost of doing war. So here's the problem. People in war die. Everybody knows that. But we can't give a free pass based on bad planning, bad decisions, and say, well, people died, but that's the cost of war. Yes, people die in war, but we still have to hold people accountable to a standard of, did you make good decisions? Did you set the framework to protect people? The drone strike is a perfect example of we were reactive. The drone strike was in response to a preventable attack in Kabul where we relied on the Taliban for perimeter security based on just an essentially awful plan. And then we wanted to get out ahead of it and change the narrative. So we were moving at a speed with which we probably shouldn't have been. And we attacked people bringing water to to needy people and we killed civilians and children. And, And no, no one was held accountable. But again, I go back to the same person that should be held accountable is that combatant commander, General McKenzie. And there's probably a couple subordinate commanders that were in that drone strike chain of command that should also be held accountable, in my opinion. Are there names that you can name? Are there people who you believe specifically should be held accountable, and should those people be investigated? I think General McKenzie is the number one guy that should be held accountable. And so, like, I could list off a bunch of names, but at the end of the day, 
General McKenzie is the guy that created the terrible plan that failed to advise the president properly, or maybe he advised the president uh, 100% accurately, but he failed to convince him. And then once the resources were imposed upon him, he didn't resign. So he assumed the plan at that point. He doesn't get to go back and say, well, I told the president other courses of action. He didn't take them. Well, you failed to get him to take them, and then you failed to resign. So now it's your plan, General McKenzie. You don't get a free pass. So General McKenzie is the the combatant commander. There's going to be much smaller two, three-star Afghanistan commanders, you know, uh, AO commanders. And so you could go down the list, um, but where does it stop? Um, That's for somebody else. Ultimately, when the investigation went, it was directed at General McKenzie, and they absolved General McKenzie based on the investigation. So, so you spent most of your adult life in the Marines, and I'm sure you saw a cultural deterioration to some degree. I, I can't speak to it firsthand at all, I, uh, so I, I want your commentary on this, but I can tell you that from watching the way the armed forces are presented to the public now, when you've got guys like Lord uh, Lloyd Austin um, suggesting that you know COVID-19 is the biggest threat to us physically, and uh, Mark Milley, who wants to understand white wa- uh, white rage, uh, it makes you think that there has been a cultural shift. Is this only at the upper echelons of the armed forces, or has this trickled down um, beneath that? Yeah, so I want to the Lloyd Austin thing. I still just can't wrap my brain around it, and there are so many fundamental issues within the military rotting us from the inside. And the Secretary of Defense, I mean, what a great job. You really have the opportunity to make fundamental changes to the military, which, in my opinion, is the strongest arm of foreign diplomacy. And he spends, and after his CENTCOM combatant command, he goes and was the Raytheon board director, or one of them, which is just a huge conflict of interest when you're talking about the oligopoly within the government contracting world. Like how we let those guys go be board directors and then come back into advising the military is just fundamentally ethical concerns are obvious. So then he goes and he takes the SECDEF job and he spends a hundred days and then he comes out and he publicly says, all right, I've studied the problem. I understand the problem. And the biggest problem facing the DOD is COVID. And when I heard that, it was like banging my fist against the wall. Like you gotta be kidding me. Like, I mean, so your question was, it's pretty obvious to see the politicalization at the top levels. Has it trickled down? Some and of how far? Policies, yes. Yeah, some of these policies these guys have put into place, obviously it's trickled down because they're policies that affect the entire service. So when I was a young major, Ray Mabus under President Obama came to where I worked, and he was talking about female inclusion in combat MOSs. And I think most people agree that uh, females do a great job, and no one cares about your gender or your sexual preference, but the, that's not the point of contention. The point of contention was the standards need to be the same for everyone, right? If I shoot a bullet, that bullet isn't going to discriminate based on ethnicity, gender, sexual preference. Like, that bullet's going to go through you regardless. And so that was really the point of contention. And he came down, Ray Mavis, and he said, the standards aren't going to change, but they will evolve. And I just remember thinking, like, well, what does that mean? Like, what are we talking about? Are the standards going to remain the same, or are they going to evolve? Like, I don't. you said both there. And that statement perfectly illustrated the challenges facing the military. And I can tell you right now, infantry training battalion in the Marine Corps, the physical standards for males and females are different. And so I, I, I can't overstate that I think females are critical in, in combat MOSs, but we have to be very careful about um, making standards different just based on inclusion. And so I'm telling that one story. I could give 10 of these, but that's an example of, you know, when you have general officers implementing policies, like obviously that trickles all the way down. I, as far as I can tell, you're the only person who was active in the Marines, really in the armed forces in general, who spoke up publicly about some of the shortfalls of our Afghanistan withdrawal and some recent policies um, that are very apparent to anyone who's paying attention that have not gone well um, for our military. Uh, is there anyone else who spoke out publicly? Uh, and and um, I assume the answer is no. Uh, do you, Were you surprised by that? And perhaps more interestingly, what have you been hearing privately from others in the Marine Corps? Yeah, so no, no one spoke out publicly. I will say there at the end, you know, after I got out of jail and was working my way through the discharge, Tulsi Gabbard, I believe is an Army reservist, um, previous Democratic congresswoman, made statements very similar to mine in uniform. 
Um, so there, so there was that. And, but no, holistically, no one else really spoke out. And that was a lot of the criticism towards me was it's not Lieutenant Colonel Scheller's place to make these statements, but I mean, look around, no one else is making these statements and maybe whispering them behind closed doors you think is doing something, but it's not. I mean, look at, just look at history. History has demonstrated those quiet whispers are not changing the system in the fundamental and at the speed with which we need to change the system. So my peers, um, you know, it's like anything. When you attack a system, you unite the system. So when we attacked Iraq, the Shia and the Sunnis who were, you know, didn't like each other, they actually united. In 9-11, when an external force attacked the United States, that unites all people with differences. And it's like that. When I attacked the Marine Corps, the senior officers kind of like closed ranks and felt attacked. And quite honestly, when I was pointing out what was wrong, even if they agreed with me, to agree with me would acknowledge their shortcomings and their failures to address the same issues, right? So most enlisted, junior enlisted, fully supported me. I mean, I couldn't drive into the gate without like somebody wanting to shake my hand or give me a hug or take a picture wow. with me. And so it was this very polarizing thing where the young troops all revered me, but the senior officers all loathed me. So even if even if I wanted to remain in the Marine Corps, just it, I was too much of a disruption. Like I couldn't walk into a room without everyone knowing who I was and then everyone having strong reactions to it one way or the other. So there are emails that uh, you obtained from your Marine Corps investigatory file that showed that there was a plan. The, the Corps had a plan to spin a narrative against you and paint you as crazy and suicidal. Uh, what was in these emails? Yeah, so the Marine Corps has a department called the Communications Directorate, and they essentially scour the Internet, and their job is to protect the reputation of the Marine Corps. And if there's anti-press, they have ways to counter that. Um, and so that's their that's their role. And so when I made my first video, the email essentially has statistics of how many people the video reached, the sentiment of people after they watched the video, which was generally negative towards the Marine Corps. Um, so, yes, they then the Marine Corps took this email that this lady sent to the commandant and the senior generals, and they put it in my investigation to show how my statements were so negative against the Marine Corps, which is just completely ignorant that they would do that because now, it, you know, I have evidence that the communications director was trying, it says in the email, trying to spin a narrative to counter what I was doing. And so, you know, they came out at one point after my second video and said, we're trying to locate Lieutenant Colonel Shelter to protect him against himself and his family. And I had my phone on the whole day. It's like, come wow. on, guys. Like, if you were trying to find me, don't you think you would have texted or called? Like, they, they obviously weren't trying to find me. They were just trying to send a message out in the media that I was potentially suicidal, homicidal. You know, they leaked my investigation to the oh, uh, an article called Task and Purpose where this guy works in the Pentagon with them. And so he's the senior Pentagon journalist. And so they basically gave him my investigation to selectively just to have him run articles about me being a violent extremist. I mean, it's, that's how the system works, unfortunately. And um, yeah, so that's what, that's all that. A remarkable uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller. Uh, where do people find you if they want to keep up with your story online? So I have a website, uh, authenticamericans.com where you can kind of see my, positions on a couple things and I do a pretty good job of responding in the forum on that where you can talk to me direct but then I also have social media my name is pretty unique Stuart S-T-U-A-R-T-S-C-H-E-L-L-E-R -E um, I'm on all the things if you go to my website authenticamericans.com all my social media is linked at the bottom um, but I'm pretty responsive on, on most platforms um, I want to ask you about some of the criticism that you are were not defending the Constitution. I, I imagine that's because a chain of command does does mean something, and there's a pretty clear that that uh, what you were doing was outside of typical chain of command. Um, uh, could you opine on this from your personal perspective that why you felt like this was a, a appropriate or acceptable breach of that? The oath is I. <laughs> I swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that's the oath we take. And so I was actually really surprised that so many people were saying that I broke my oath. I mean, we have an obligation, according to our oath, to fight against domestic enemies that are counter to the Constitution. And so 
I actually got into this. The two star when he wrote my letter of reprimand said that I violated my sacred oath, and I wrote back. Like, I just quoted what I just said. Like, no, I didn't violate it. Like, go back and look at the oath. It's just over time we forget these things. I'll give you another example. In in some of my posts, I quoted the Declaration of Independence, which states, you know, the powers of the government are derived from the people, and if the government starts not working for the people, it's the people's obligation to throw off that old former government. You know, I'm not quoting that directly, but that to, words to the, that effect. So I quoted it, and then people started saying how I was calling for a violent revolution and how I was a extremist. I mean, look how far we've come. I'm an extremist for literally quoting the Declaration of Independence. And it's the same thing about the oath. Like, the powers to be in the military have become so centralized that they've lost perspective on what that oath actually means. And this is my opinion. And so I don't think I violated my oath at all. I think I was the only one that understood his oath and was doing what needed to be done. Uh, a former mentor of yours, who I believe is also um, a, a, a someone who was in the Corps or was a soldier uh, somewhere in the armed forces, forgive me for not having the history exactly right, uh, challenged you and said that you should be willing to, use your, to lose your job if you're serious about really standing up on behalf of uh, ethics in the military. Uh, and do you feel like you lived up to that challenge because you did end up sacrificing your job? You did end up uh, resigning. Uh, describe to me kind of what you were thinking during these major decisions after you'd come out and made your video. Yeah, so when I made the first video, it was supposed to be just that video. And I knew I'd probably be fired, but I thought an investigation would take place. I, so I made the first video and I came into work. And they relieved me immediately, which I was surprised by. No investigation, no discussion, no, hey, let's take a time out and think about this. It was just, you're fired. So, okay. But still, even after that, I was like, all right, well, I I knew I would be fired. So no more posts. Let's just let the process play out. But then I looked on my social media and an old commanding officer of mine who I thought of as a mentor, he's a retired 06 colonel, and he's still very active in the Marine Corps. He's got a contracting job, so I still see him all over the place within the Marine Corps. And he wrote on my social media post, if Stuart Scheller was honorable, he would resign. And he didn't identify himself as my previous boss or our relationship. I mean, he was basically calling me out publicly on my social media. Wow. And that was just one of those moments where I was like, you know, these guys don't care about me. You know, there's no investigation that took place. They didn't want to talk to me about it. I've got previous bosses that I truly care about, this guy, just – heckling me. He didn't text me. He didn't call me. He didn't email me. He publicly called me on my social media without any connection to his relationship to me. And that's when I just kind of came to the conclusion that if these guys don't care about me, I don't care about them. And I'm going to stand by what I said, because it's very important what I'm saying. I am very invested in the Marine Corps. I want to make it better. And I'm not going to just submit. I'm, I'm going to fight back. And that's what led to the, the escalation of events, ultimately culminating with me going to jail and getting court-martialed. But, you know, in a fight when you're protecting somebody, if they push you, you push back, right? And so that's kind of how that played out. Um, I did end up resigning. So, you know, if that guy really believed what he said when he was heckling me, if Stuart Schiller was honorable, he'd resign. But, you know, ultimately still the institution didn't give me an honorable discharge. So the institution uh, decided that what I did wasn't honorable. So it's just it's a very complicated situation. But at the end of the day, all you can do is look back and, decide if you think you did the right thing and if you had the opportunity would you do it again and I think I would I would do the do the same thing over again I would probably tweak some of my verbiage um, just because there was a couple times I made comments that people just got hung up on like one or two comments and missed the overall content of what I was saying so maybe I would clean that up but ultimately I would do the same thing over you know I'm not sorry for anything I did I took accountability for what I did that's different but I'm not apologetic well is, is there anything specific that you would have done over in the second video, I said I'm going to bring the whole effing system down. You, know, it's, hmm. I, you just understand the context of it. Sure. The, the context of it, I had just given up my career, my 17 years. I knew my marriage was disintegrating. Like My whole life was falling apart. And so it was very emotional. Like If you go back and just look, like I'm obviously um, – there, there's a lot of emotion in that video. But it doesn't mean – I meant everything that I said in there. Um, so w one thing I would have done differently is I would have just taken that verbiage out. Like I meant it 
metaphorically, right? I think the system is broken. I think the system needs to be fundamentally changed. But the manner in which I said that allowed people to just paint me as a, a crazy guy. And it took away from some of the content of what I was trying to say. So I would have probably tweaked some of that, but I ultimately still would have done the same things. Do you feel overall that this has been worth it for you to get did you feel like your message i know on a personal level you've said it is but do you feel like your message has been uh the, you've gotten the air that it needs because uh, as far as i know you're the only one who's resigned over afghanistan which was a a national disgrace regardless of if people support the way you handled things or not i think we can all pretty much agree on that and still you're the only one who's taken this level of a stand so do you feel like it's been effective no, so I made a post on Christmas Eve when I got out that up to this point I've been just systematically defeated. But I, I referenced George Washington, you know, a system of uh, a series of defeats, and then on Christmas Eve, you know, across the Delaware, attacked the British, which was a, a Haitian element, and it was a turning point in the war. It wasn't decisive. And that's what I like in this little media blip too. You know, for the next month I'm I'm going on all the shows and I'm basically just saying everything I've said on this interview. And it's not decisive. I haven't made the changes yet that I want to, but I'm going to, and I fully believe that. And it's crazy to me, Alex, how many people have just resigned themselves to, well, this is the way it is. You're not going to be able to change it. Like, I think the majority of people actually think like that, and I just fundamentally and philosophically disagree. I think most of us agree with the statements that I made. And so if you agree with the statements that I made, to just say, well, you're not going to be able to change it is such a defeatist mentality. Like we as the people have the ability to make change. And so, no, I haven't achieved what I want to yet, but I'm not going to stop until I do. Now, there's one thing that's slightly off topic, but I, I is in some ways directly on topic is that the Marine Corps is a large percentage of unvaccinated service members, um, including a big chunk of the reservists. Um, it, it's the, the why are Marines defying the vaccination order at a more robust level, do you believe, than other uh, parts of the service? I would like to think the Marine Corps has got a lot of independent thinkers, you know. Um, I think over time in the system, when you get up to the general officer level, they kind of weed that out. Um, I don't think you have a lot of independent thinkers as generals. But in the lower ranks, I mean, look at me. I would submit I'm somewhat of an independent thinker. There is a lot of that. And so I think in the junior ranks, you have just a lot of people that are independent thinkers. And you know, whether you agree with it or not, um, I, I understand why the Marine Corps had such a higher number. Uh, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller, uh, last one for today is just, can you just update us on where your saga is right now? Yeah, I was discharged with a general under honorable on Christmas Eve. I served 17 years, so I did not get my retirement. That was probably the biggest loss, so no retirement. And I am moving forward. A lot of people wanted to put me into politics in 22 I, this was so physically mentally spiritually draining that i don't know if i have the endurance for that but i did i do have an organization of veteran candidates because the bumper stickers i think we need leaders and not politicians so we've got five senate candidates 20 congressional candidates where i've pulled them together i've done a couple of zooms with them i'm offering them access it's like a menu of do you need political action committee do you need training on how to do speaking engagements do you need media you know, do you need advisors? All these types of things. And and my goal is just to get like five votes out of that where we have leaders up there, not politicians, because, you know, the, like you said, no one's been held accountable. Congress took turns with their sound bites of anger directed towards the generals, but then nothing happened. The real influence within Congress is the DOD budget, and none of them had the courage to challenge the DOD budget. They approved it unanimously, actually six days before they all stood in front of the generals and told them how angry they were. You know, it takes someone with actual leadership abilities and to understand foreign diplomacy to do some of the things that we need to do. And right now we just actions have demonstrated that we don't have that. So I'm trying to put leaders in places where they need to be. And uh, I'm going to you know, do a media tour. I'll probably write a book and then I'll reassess in 24, potentially jump into politics. I'm I'm not a politician, but I do believe we need some leaders up there. And I'm just very invested. Like I said, I've been thinking about foreign diplomacy, living it my whole life, and I just can't see myself just fading. Uh, this is something that I'm very passionate about, and so we'll, we'll see where it goes. Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller, uh, where can people find you again? Give us that website one last time. Authentic 
AllAmericans.com. Well, thanks for all the time, and um, I'm sure we'll catch up down the road. Thanks, Alex. Fascinating caller of the day today, uh, Gabe in Georgia, called in saying that he understands what's happening when it comes to the segregation of the vaxxed and the unvaxxed, and he does feel as though there is a manipulation that's taking place, uh, something akin to what John Nolte and I talk about as the reverse psychology that's being used, I think, against uh, Trump supporters that is preventing them from getting the shots that could help many of them. Um, but it's still something that he's struggling with personally, especially as someone who's already had the coronavirus. Uh, it's an interesting story, and I think the dialogue is really strong. That's why he's our caller of the day. Let's roll Gabe in Georgia. Well, uh, I, I, got, I got some thoughts. We'll run them by you. So I, I personally believe that this administration doesn't really want your average conservative Republican to get vaccinated. The way they approach it is they, they're not dumb. They know that people like myself, the only reason I'm not vaccinated, my wife is vaccinated, my mother and father are vaccinated. I'm not vaccinated simply because, like, I don't think the vaccine's going to kill me. It's probably the best thing for me. But I'm not going to have my government try to stop me from doing things in my own country and force something on me, whether whether it's good for me or not. It's not, my, it's not the point. And they know that. They know that the ones that aren't vaccinated now simply are not vaccinated because the way they're approaching it. And they're approaching it that way because they don't really want us vaccinated. Gabe, you're so right on this. You know how I know you're right? Because that was me for a hot minute. And I realized that I was seeing the data come in, and you guys know I get a lot of reports from all, all over the healthcare world, and everyone kept telling me the pattern was that by and large, that there are some side effects, but they're they're pretty rare, and it, it is not stopping the virus, but it's certainly reducing severe symptoms. And you're probably better off for most adults getting it, even though you know it's not a black and white thing. But you're probably better off. And I still felt myself resisting it because I hate Fauci and I hate the friendly fascist Francis Collins, and I don't like these drug companies, and I don't want to support all that, and I don't like uh, President Brandon. And then I realized that there's not really a good reason, but they know we're thinking that, Gabe. They're, as you said, they're not dumb. They know that that's what's going through our minds, and that should not be governing our health decisions, but it is It is governing a lot of our health decisions. They're right. It's the, to- it's the absolute wrong way that you want to make a medical decision. I mean, you don't that's want right. to have that forced on you. And I, I had coronavirus. I had the Delta variant. I had it back at the end of September. And, buddy, I was sick. I'm going to lie to you. My, I mean, my yeah. wife, who is vaccinated, gave it to me. I was really, really sick. So now I've got the antibodies, and I've been around a guy I work with who just had this variant of corona and, um, you know, haven't gotten it. And I'm even considering wanting to get vaccinated because I don't want to go through that crap again. It's no fun. But it's like the patriot in me says it's the wrong thing to yeah. do. Uh, no, and, and, and especially when you've had the virus, because I still see no compelling reason for people who have had the virus to have to get the, the vaccine. I'm not, I, we really don't know, Gabe. I mean, it might turn out that you have some sort of super duper duper immunity if you've had the vaccine and the in the virus. But I, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't help because of the natural immunity is so strong, according to at least the studies might be dated now based on old variants. But I don't, we don't know the answer to these things. And to act like we do know the answer to something like that is so it's so dishonest. It's not even arrogant. It's just not true. Right. I, I know that's just that's what makes me constantly think that that there's a, a bigger agenda here that it it's almost as if they want to divide this country in every possible way of management. It's like they, that's, their, that's their goal. They do. And I'll, tell, I'll give you two uh, pieces of evidence why I think they do. They're perfectly comfortable with resegregating society. I mean, look at what's happening in our colleges where they're now separating uh, people uh, based on color in various dorms. Look at what's happening in right. New York where they're, where they're openly discriminating against white people when it comes to treatment for, for disease. So they're, they're perfectly comfortable resegregating us. That's number one. And then you look at the death toll. If the death toll is 2,000 people a day still, and I mean, let's even say that number is exaggerated. And let's say that a fraction of those people are still vaccinated. We're still talking about hundreds, if not a thousand plus people who are opposed to the vaccine. You know, a lot of those people are going to be Trump supporters and America first type voters, and they're dying every day. They're okay with that. They're completely okay with that. And it could end up having electoral benefit for them. Yeah, I know, man. It's all so backwards. It makes me feel, I love my country, man. I want to be able to, I want this to be over, but I just have this this feeling in my gut that that is not yeah. where the people in control, they, they don't want that. They want division. They, they want this country to be divided in every possible way they can. And the coronavirus is the most handy way to do it right now, and they're, they're, they're doing that. That is their goal. Yeah. 
Gabe, you're a very clear thinker. I don't know what the best thing to do. I got American parts. All right, that's all for today's podcast. Thanks so much, all of you who have told 10,000 friends and family members about this show. Uh, don't be afraid to uh, send someone a link to your favorite episode or an interview that you found compelling and tell them to check it out and maybe subscribe. Uh, it's a big help to me. It's a big help to us at Breitbart, and I do think we're producing a great product, uh, largely thanks to our producers. Uh, Producer Haley and Greg Eben, uh, Robert Marlowe helps me pick topics, and you guys are sharing Breitbart's content is the best advertisement, period, and we thank you so much for uh, supporting us. All right, we're back tomorrow for another edition of Breitbart News Daily. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.